Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. First, we focus on some of the flood-stricken regions in the interior of the province. I think this is the forgotten part of this disaster. There are a lot of small communities that have been cut off by flooding and road closures, and they need a lot of help. And I'll tell you who has been stepping up. It's some of the pilots in British Columbia have got their own planes, their own helicopters. They have been stepping up big time here to help these stranded communities. Let's check in with Sean Heaps now from the West Coast Pilot Club in Langley. He's been doing a lot of this great work. Hey, Sean. Hey, how's it going? Thank you very much Sean, for having me on the show. Sean, thanks a lot for coming on. What kind of uh, what kind of aircraft do you fly? So, uh, 172, uh, I fly all sorts of different planes, 170, 172, but most of the planes that are going out are 172s, Archers, uh, Piper Cherokees, uh, a few Cardinals. So a mixture of all planes, but um, typically four-seaters. There are a couple of six-seater twins that have come out and helped. And then uh, helicopters have been anywhere from a 44, or a Robertson 44, uh, Bell 206, to uh, uh, an Aerospottle uh, B3 and a B2. And, and these uh, guys, and these are all just privately owned aircraft. Like, like you guys are like just private guys that yeah. fly fly for pleasure, fly fly for fun, right? Yep, exactly. Yeah. Well, we live for these type of moments. This is like what all the pilots get their license for is to be able to help and to inspire uh, future pilots, all that sort of stuff. So, Okay. Um, Let's talk about that, Sean. Tell me about some of the missions you guys have been on. Like, how many how many uh, relief flights have, have you guys done? Well, just yesterday, just yesterday it was about 30, and we had crappy weather till about 11 o'clock is when we can get our first flight out. Um, but we've, on one day, one of the, just one of the days, we did 58 flights. We've done... Uh, almost a hundred flights in another day, um, in and out, in and out with different types of ops. Um, I would, I, we are probably close to 400, 500, wow. uh, flights already that we've done. We've, we've put over just in, in product, um, ranging from groceries to supplies to whatever. Um, we've put out pretty close to 150,000 pounds of product. Wow. And we're doing another huge, big operation again today to the um, indigenous communities again that have absolutely no access to grocery stores or food supplies. Um, we're hoping to do another 40,000 pounds today as well. well that's, that's awesome, Sean. I love the way you guys are stepping up like that. It's, a, it's amazing. And what areas of the province are we talking about here? Like, what are the worst hit areas that you've been going out to? So the, the worst hit is um, Merritt is, was really badly hit. And the roads between Merritt, Spencer's Bridge, Spencer's yeah. Bridge, and pretty much like Boston Bar, Lillooet, or um, Linton area, there's there's no roads. Like there is literally no roads in some sections. It's just the, the river carved out uh, a different path and took out uh, sections of roads. So there is like literally no roads to get out. Uh, so that's why we're um, flying supplies in to either private strips that are there or if we can't get our aircraft in uh, because there's no strips, then we fly it into another airport, the uh, closest airport or airstrip, and then our helicopter team picks it up from there and goes into the remote communities to make sure that they have food, blankets, 
warm clothing, um, also pet, pet food, uh, like you name it, diapers, uh, feminine products. We're trying to think of everything that they could possibly want. And now that we're connected into these communities, we're getting their wish lists on like, we need this or we need that. So now we're actually focusing on their exact needs uh, for what they need. Oh, that's fantastic. I'm speaking to Sean Heaps, West Coast Pilot Club in Langley, about the private pilots who've been pitching in here to help these stranded communities. Uh, when you go into these communities, like what's it like to land in some of these remote communities and, and bring in and bring in these badly needed supplies? I mean, you guys have become a lifeline uh, for these people who are stranded and cut off. I mean, they must be so grateful. What's that like for you? Like you mentioned that you fly for fun, but man, oh man, to, to do something like this must really lift you up. What's that like? Oh, it does. For for a pilot, when we 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 meet, when we get to meet some of the people. Uh, actually, pretty much every single person that we've met have like have, have, do get big hugs, tears, yeah. um, crying of just like uh, like just emotions with them, like they're like breaking down. Like there's people out there like us that are like supporting them and helping them and making sure that they're looked after. Uh, and then the pilot, the same thing. Like they get a big hug and they start getting teary eyed teary- yeah. because it's emotional for them as well being able hey, did, to help somebody did you uh you guys rescue a monkey the other day or something someone <laughs> yeah. told me yesterday yeah yesterday yeah, a, a monkey and a couple of kittens yeah we uh, uh bradley uh Friesen and mr bentley the dog uh were, <laughs> went out in the b3 to uh pick up the monkey we named him hannibal because the le- because the cage it looked like it looked like something like a serial killer would be in but uh the monkey's name is monty <laughs> Um, but, uh, yeah, they went out, picked him up and then dropped him off safely to a uh, rescue house here, uh, in, uh, the lower mainland here. And, uh, the, and uh, the uh, late, the, the people that owned her, uh, or owned the monkey was, was just in tears for how grateful to be able to rescue a monkey. <laughs> yeah. Okay. You mentioned, uh, Bradley Friesen, your buddy there, who is a helicopter pilot, who's been one of the guys helping out here. And he was actually on this show yesterday. And I talked to him about some of these interior communities that you guys are helping out. And I asked him whether, you know, if, if, they, if it feels like some of these people have been forgotten here in this, uh, in this saga. And here's what he had to say to me, Sean, and I'll get your thoughts on it. Here's Bradley Friesen speaking yesterday. Do you think that some of these communities, especially in the interior, may have been, I don't know, like forgotten? Like, like you Completely say, I mean. Completely forgotten. Yeah. Completely forgotten. Completely, like, left to fend from themselves. Uh, local food banks are uh, hiring helicopters to bring them supplies. You know, food banks struggle in the best of times to just supply the people with food that need them. Now you're putting the burden of, of uh, hiring, you know, helicopters on top of a food bank. You know, that that's... That's not fair. Yeah, that's a helicopter pilot, Bradley Friesen, on the show yesterday. I know he's a friend of yours, Sean. Like, do you, do you feel the same way about that, that some of these communities seem to, I don't know, have been forgotten in a way? Oh, 100%. Bradley and I yeah. talk all the time, and we talked yesterday on just how they're, they're just totally forgotten. These communities are, are just, it's like yesterday's news. Like they didn't even really be, weren't helped in the beginning. Um, it's just, I don't know, it, it's heartbreaking that there's communities out there that just, I, I don't know, the government just doesn't know they exist, or I don't know. I have no idea why, but, uh, and that's why we stepped up, and that's uh, why Bradley and I teamed up uh, to do run all these missions and run all this food out, because people need supplies. We, yeah. can't, we, like, like, we can't leave them without. How do you guys pay for this? Um, 
out of my pocket mostly. Really? <laughs> but uh, yeah, but uh, um, we are getting the donations in. So don- uh, cash donations uh, are been greatly appreciated. Uh, we're not even close to uh, what I've spent already. Um, just one helicopter into one of the areas is about $6,500 for an hour in and an hour out. So two hours of a helicopter is like $6,500, $6,800. And we got um, a couple of helicopters running today, as well as aircraft are $300 for a trip into Merritt and back is about $300. Is there, um, is there, any, way, is there any way that people can pitch in and donate to help, help you guys out? With those we costs, there, there, there's two ways. So I've got a. They can e-transfer to my email at langleyjets at gmail dot com. Use password uh, helicopter. Um, and then the other one is we have a GoFundMe page. Uh, Lisa Shepard, one of our volunteers, put up for us. Um, uh, so you can pay. You can go through there, or the Seek uh, community also has a um, a um, fund me page as well for us to help out. Yeah, like a lot of those Seek uh, Goodvaras are really stepping up. To help oh, you guys, man! Amazing. I have yeah. a like, like crazy respect for their their whole community because I, I I didn't realize how much they center around family and community. Yeah. They they step up like I've never seen before. I we'd get a request at the very beginning for dog food. We didn't have any dog food or, or cat food or kitty litter or anything. I went outside, loaded a couple, helped loaded a couple of planes, came back inside, and we were filled with cat food, dog food, and everything. That's how quick. Their community comes together to help others. Sean, I know you're getting back to work here to fly some more missions. Thanks for taking the time today. Appreciate it. And thank you for everything you're doing. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Thanks. Okay. All right. Welcome back to the show. You heard my conversation there with Sean Heaps, West Coast Pilot Club in Langley, one of the private pilots who have been pitching in here to help some of these stranded people in the interior have been cut off by flooding and uh, flooded out roads. Let's check in with Jackie Taggart, Liberal MLA, Fraser Nicola. She represents a lot of these regions that have been impacted by the flooding. Hi, Jackie. Good morning, Mike. Thanks a lot. Can you give us an update on, on your riding and like the, the flooding in, in your area? And we've just, we were just talking to one of the pilots here who's been helping out some of these people who are stranded. You know, we're like the epicenter of uh, every uh, disaster that's happened this year. I was out on Highway 8 yesterday uh, with some constituents, went to uh, meet with a number of people. I mean, they're out there uh, trying to save their homes, trying to save their uh, properties, and uh, feeling very forgotten. Yeah, yeah. No, I got that impression from Sean there, too. And Highway 8, oh, my God, that has just been destroyed, big portions of it. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, we've got people out on Highway 8 that still have uh, animals that need to be moved. Um, these are people who faced um, the wildfires going up the valley in the summer, and now they're facing trying to save their homes and save their properties. I mean, people are saying to me, what, what do I do? My land is gone. Yeah, yeah. What, what, do, you think um, needs, what do you think needs to happen? Like, what do they need? Well, I, I think they need government to step up, and, and uh, I've said that a number of times. I've been uh, very vocal about that advocacy. Where is government? They need to know they've got support. I talked to someone yesterday who wanted, uh, who put in um, a request for the great big sandbags, not asking anybody to fill them for them. They would do that themselves, and their request got turned down. Like, how can that be? Turned down. These are people who are working 
uh, with neighbors, trying to save property, trying to save buildings, and um, a simple request, like the huge sandbags that they were looking for, was down by the emergency operations center. So, what, like, so that so that's the like the provincial emergency center. Yes. So why would they do that? Why would they turn down a request like that? I, I, I it's unbelievable that they would. Absolutely yeah. unbelievable to me. Unfundable that they would. Okay, well, I, I and listen. It shows again how yeah. broken the system is. Okay, I, l- I listened to the news conference yesterday with uh, Transportation Minister Rob Fleming, and, and he talked about this particular area that we're, we're discussing right now. And he said, you know, they, they are on the ground. They are assessing the roads. They are trying to get some of these roads reopened. They're, they're trying to get supplies into people, but you don't think... So he says they are doing it. Uh, they are helping, but you're saying it's not adequate. I'm hearing from, from constituents that um, there are many occasions when... Um, they feel like they've been forgotten when they're asking not for people to on the ground, but they're asking just for things like um, sandbags. And uh, it is just, you know, they've got no phones. They've got no internet. They're using radios to communicate. They've got no power. And the weather's changing. They're seeing uh, cold weather coming. And they're uh, saying, you know, like, where is government and what is the plan for those of us who are trying to save our property? Speaking of Jackie Taggart, Liberal MLA Fraser Nicola, so what areas are we talking about? Like, I I just spoke to Sean Heaps, who said that some of the areas around, like, Merritt, Spence's Bridge, are some of the worst worst hit areas where there are people who were cut off. Is is that the area, the worst area? I'm talking about Mike yeah, and yeah. I took a drive out there with a constituent yesterday and we drove around uh, along what is left of Highway 8. It is pretty frightening and there is no doubt that they're they're working on the road. There are tons of helicopters flying over top and um, you know there's people in those houses that are saying uh, don't forget us. Yeah and do you and do you feel like I don't know they have been forgotten? They feel like they've been forgotten. Yeah, yeah. And that's what counts, is that um, if they're feeling that way, we got to take a look at how do we support them. And they're, they're absolutely facing devastation. These are ranches, small farms, hobby farms, that have seen 10 acres go into the river. And I think one of the things that, as we look to the future, we know how tough it is to do any work in a waterway and um, they're looking for guidance from both levels of government, federal and provincial, to say, what's the plan here? Are you going to put the river back in the um, natural riverbed and help us wow. save our properties? But, I mean, they've watched their, like 10 acres go down the river. There is, there is a lot of work to do uh, to, say, to understate it, obviously. Jackie, thank you for coming on today. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Mike. And, and um, you know, people are looking towards um, the holiday season and yeah. they're, they're just absolutely in despair thinking about what the future looks like.
All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about those real estate prices. Some of these numbers that have just come out from the local real estate boards are just eye-popping numbers here, the price increase over the last year. If you look at detached homes and townhomes in Metro Vancouver, up 20% year over year. The Fraser Valley, unbelievable here. The Valley used to be the place where you could buy an affordable home. Prices way, way up there as well. Let's discuss now with my guest, Dane Itell, founder and lead analyst at Itell Insights. Hey, Dane. Hi, Mike. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me on. Thanks a lot for coming on. What is driving these prices? Like I'm looking at the Fraser Valley, uh, average price of a detached home, $1.4 million. What, 36% increase in one year? What? Yeah, it's absolutely outstanding, uh, the the price increases. Really what's happened, transpired since the epidemic or the pandemic has began is a lot of local buying. So to your point, everybody has moved out eastward uh, where prices used to be more affordable. And actually the average sale price, I believe the price that you were quoting was the HPI. The average sale price in Fraser Valley is $1,693,000, which is 49% above the previous market peak. The previous market peak was occurred during April of 2018. Average sale price was $1,138,000. What's interesting about the 49% increase to me is all 49% of the increase has actually occurred since September of 2020. So it's been a rapid gain over a short amount of time. That's incredible. And so you think this is local demand. This is people moving out of Metro, like moving, moving up the valley. Absolutely. There, you know, there was a, there was a big drive for land, for detached houses. And even inside of Greater Vancouver, the areas that really have exploded were the entry level price points. So prices that were below a million are, are clearly no longer. There is no area inside of Greater Vancouver that's below a million for a detached property anymore. Yeah. Yeah, no, you can't get a detached home for yeah. That's a, that's incredible. What about like you know townhouses, condos? Is that all? Is it everything going up? You know what? The townhouses have have been in lockstep with the detached, and in some areas actually exceeding them. However, the condo market really hasn't participated as much over this recent gain. Fraser Valley market has actually gone up twenty seven percent year over year. But the Greater Vancouver condo market is still 1% below the previous peak from January of 2018. So the average sale price at that point in time was 751000 The current average sale price is 747000 So we're just a bit below going forward. That's what I would expect to do well here over the next couple of years, just because that price gap is so large from the condo to the detached. And really that middle asset class, the townhouses, the duplexes, uh, the Vancouver special homes are, are, are really not being built in the same numbers that they used to or being allowed to by the city or municipalities. I, I really feel for a young family trying to get into a first home here with these prices. I mean, is, is there anything out there that's affordable anywhere? <laughs> there, there really isn't. Um, to, be, to be completely honest with you, these prices have escalated uh, at, at outrageous paces. Um, that said, going forward, what we anticipate is probably a cooling off uh, during or in the Fraser Valley in the secondary or tertiary markets. Those markets have really led uh, overall since the pandemic began. The historical market leaders have actually turned into the laggers. So Vancouver West, um, Richmond, North Burnaby's, they're barely above or still below their previous market peaks, while areas like Maple Ridge, Chilliwack are you know, well exceeded. Okay, we just got one minute left here. I mean, we've seen government intervention before into this market to try and cool this off and cool these prices down. Do you anticipate more government intervention here in the market, given these latest increases? You know, well, they're planning to do a seven-day rescission period to the resale market, which has never happened. That was specifically for the pre-sale market. So that's what, what, is that? what, what does that mean? What is that? 
Sure. So it, it basically removes uh, the best efforts out of a contract to purchase and sale. It's going to stay or state that you can no longer have a subject-free offer go into a seller. So basically, you'll have a, instead of just a women fancy clause that may be included in the contract to purchase and sale, there will be no chance for a subject-free offer, uh, and you have seven days to change your mind at the eleventh hour or ask for a price reduction. So it really is putting the seller in their corner. Dane, we continue to follow it very closely. Thanks for coming on with your analysis. Appreciate it. Mike, I appreciate it. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. For to our next chat. All right, welcome back to the show. We've talked a lot about the emergency response system in our province, feeling the stress during all the emergencies we've had in BC, from the deadly heat wave to the wildfires and now the flooding. Pressure on the 911 call system. It is feeling the strain. Now some changes announced by Ecom to ease the pressure. 911 operators now allowed to put a caller on hold while they wait for an ambulance. Now, Ecom says this is only a temporary measure while they increase call capacity. Uh, have a listen to this. This is Oliver Gruter Andrew, president and CEO of the Ecom 911 system, speaking to Simi Sarah, but pointing out that a lot of these calls are non-life-threatening calls. Here's what he had to say. There are you know, many cases where uh, the person who is injured is not on their own. They have a friend, a family member with them who maybe even makes the call and the injury is not life-threatening you know it could be um a broken leg okay as the president of ecom they're saying rationalizing explaining why it would be okay to put someone on hold while they're waiting for that ambulance the union though for 911 call operators not happy about this at all let's check in with akash gill recording secretary with qp8911 that's the union that represents the 911 operators akash thank you for coming on today thank you so much for having me mike yeah, you are you are a 911 operator yourself is that right yes i i take 911 calls and i also answer emergency and non-emergency for police okay tell me what you think of this so how how is this supposed to work now how have you what have you guys been told about about putting calls on hold like this so the hard, the hard part about this decision is within those first 10 or 15 seconds when I'm answering a 911 call, if somebody asks for ambulance, I would then transfer them to the ambulance service. Typically, I'd be on the line with that person. And even though we're not medically trained as 911 operators, even a few words of reassurance when you're in your time of crisis, because whether whether it be life-threatening or, or not, um, it doesn't it doesn't necessarily matter because for you that may be some of the worst moments that you'll experience in your life. People don't call nine one one on their good days, so uh, I'm able to provide some reassurance. You know, I'm still here with you. Stay on the line. I can listen in to things that are going on in the background. 
people often call 911 will ask for an ambulance for calls that have other other elements to it. We don't know if it's as a result of a fight or an assault or domestic violence. But within those few seconds, I'd be clicking that ambulance button now and letting that person stay on hold on their own. I'm not necessarily asking what it is they need an ambulance for because we're not medically trained to do that. So it's a hard judgment call to make for for the operators, although we've been doing it for a long time and we're doing the best we can. It's it's an immense amount of pressure on that system and for people to be on their own in their worst moments. Yeah, I can certainly understand how that would be a pressure-filled situation. Like the, the previous system, you correct me if I'm wrong here, but the previous system, the way it worked was, let's say the call comes in, person needs an ambulance, you are now transferring that call to the ambulance system and sometimes there's a waiting period there and before this new this new rule kicked in, you would be required to stay on the line with that person the whole time until the ambulance picks up. Is that is that that's right? Absolutely, yeah. that's absolutely it. From day one, yeah. we're trained to stay on the line with somebody until you have heard their voice. Talk to the next voice on the line, so people aren't alone. And yeah. this this changes that. Right. And so, how long? Like we've heard a lot about waiting times, right? So let's say you have someone on the line before this new rule kicked in and you're on the line waiting with them for an ambulance to pick up, like how long could that wait be sometimes? We've seen waits of, of on the worst days, up 17 minutes, 30 minutes. Those hold oh. times can get, get up there. And that's why it's so important that we're providing even just those few words of reassurance, telling somebody it's going to be okay, can make a world of difference. I want to be told I'm going to be okay if I'm having a moment of crisis. I've worked on the downtown east side, on the front lines of the opioid pandemic there. And I've known what it feels like to call 911 and to have that sense of relief from being told, I'm here with you, even even if it's just that. Um, it, right. It's really disheartening. Yeah. Speaking to Akash Gill, she's a 911 call operator uh, about this new system that's been introduced to put callers on hold while they wait for an ambulance. So like, okay, so let's say you've got someone on the line and you're waiting a long time for the ambulance to respond. Like you said, it can be, you know, it can be 10 minutes or more. What would you typically talk? Would you be talking to the person the whole time during that period? So there is, there is and has always been a pre-recorded message that will intermittently play when you're on hold, um, even if somebody is there on the line with you. So in between those, checking in with the caller, making sure they're still on the line, reminding them to stay on the line because, you know, if you're, if you're just listening to something that's recorded in, in those moments of need, you want somebody to be there to tell you just what to do so you can focus on dealing with the situation at hand. Um, and it, I, I'll just, this change also disproportionately affects uh, non-English speaking communities because mm. the pre-recorded messaging is all in English. And, you know, people may know enough English to ask for police, fire, ambulance when they initially are calling 911. And if they don't identify immediately that they need a translator, now not only are they listening to that pre-recorded message, but it's in a language that they don't understand. So it really feels like we're not supporting people and giving people the service that they deserve in BC right now. Right, right. And so now the system, like let's say, okay, okay a call comes in, you're waiting for the ambulance service to respond. Do the 911 operators like yourself and your colleagues, do you now have some sort of discretion about whether to whether to put the caller on hold? Or like what if it's a real dire emergency? You're not going to put someone on hold if they're in a desperate situation, are you? Yeah, so the way it works, we do have a procedure in place for calls that are quickly identified. And I want to stress the quickly because, again, we're only talking to that person for, for a set period of time and then transferring them 
now with the new changes. And if it's not identified before we transfer them, then that person is going to have to call back on 911 if something becomes more dire in their situation. Um, yeah, like if something happens, I don't know, maybe they start bleeding bleeding or something, then what, they got to hang up and call back to that, say like it's, like it's gotten, more, it's gotten more serious. Yeah. Okay, so... So let's say you you put you, you make the decision now to put someone on hold. So what will they hear while they're on hold? They hear a pre-recorded message while they're on hold. Is that right? It's it's a pre-recorded message while yeah. they're on hold. Right. Okay. And you know that's what you expect when you call you call your telecom companies or customer service agents, and and that's something that we've come to accept. But it's absolutely unacceptable when it comes to people's lives on the line. Yeah. Speaking to Akash Gill, she's a nine one one call operator. Let me play another clip here for you, Akash from. Oliver Gruter Andrew, the president and CEO of Ecom, and here he is describing uh, another reason for these changes. Have a listen. I'll get your thoughts. Our staff don't like to be on the line with a caller when they really can make no difference at all, and yet they see the nine one one calls building up in the queue, not knowing what's behind those calls. Okay, so he's saying the staff don't like it to be on 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 a whole, on a call with someone when they can't really help over the phone. And meanwhile, you've got more calls coming in. So I guess that's the rationale. Like, they want you guys to put them on hold so you can keep answering other calls that are coming in, right? Yeah, and you know what? It, it's true. We don't like that feeling of helplessness because we signed up to do a job to help people. And as uncomfortable or, or as much as somebody might not like it, that's still what we signed up to do. And we want to be there for people in their worst moments. So, yeah, I don't, I don't like um, I don't like having to sit on hold with people because I want to get people help quickly because that's the job. Right. So, but you don't want to put them on hold either, though. Absolutely right? not. I, yeah. uh, would you want to be on hold listening to a recorded message for an unspecified amount of time in your moment of crisis? Yeah. It's, yeah, it's not I, a hard answer. I, I guess the way ecom is rationalizing it or explaining it is that there are so many nine one one calls coming in, and I guess they're they're just trying to utilize their resources as effectively as possible. So, if you have a situation where maybe it's a, not a, a life threatening situation or emergency, or the caller is, has someone with them, then yeah, they think okay, put them on hold, and then keep taking more calls, like. You know, instead of sitting on hold, instead of being on the line with someone while there's more 911 calls coming in, put them on hold and then keep answering more calls. Like, I guess I can understand the rationale of that. Right? I can understand the rationale, but the real solution is to get us the adequate funding and the staffing levels that we need to be able to make sure no calls are waiting on hold when calling yeah. into emergency services in our province. Right. So, so the union's position on this is. You know, they want you guys want more resources, and so does ecom. So does your employer. They want more resources too, but you're saying don't put people on hold in the meantime. That's not that's not a good thing to do. Uh, like like you said, you can understand the rationale behind it, but yeah. given the nature of the job that we do and the work that we do and the people that we're talking to, the things that they're experiencing, it's it's a terrifying thing to think about waiting on hold with nobody else there. Okay. Akash, thanks for coming on to talk about it today. We'll see where it goes from here. Thank you so much, Mike. All right. Welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the campaign now to lower the voting age in Canada. Now, the the minimum age to vote in a federal election in our country right now, of course, is 
18. Should it be lower than that? Some people think it should be 16. Now, check this out. There is a fascinating lawsuit now that has been launched uh, arguing that the 18-year-old voting age is actually unconstitutional in our country under the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Let's discuss now. we got some great guests for you. Diego Christensen Barker is on the line. He is 17 years old. He's from Campbell River here in British Columbia. He's part of this lawsuit. Diego, thanks for coming on today. Thank you for having me, Smith, uh, or Mike. It's, uh, it's great to talk to you again. Thank you for doing this. Also on the line is Cheryl Milne, Executive Director, David Asper Center for Constitutional Rights at the University of Toronto involved in this case. Hi, Cheryl. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you for both both of you being here. Okay, Diego, you're 17 years old, right? You think you should be allowed to vote in a federal election in Canada, correct? Yes. Okay, so tell me about that. Why do you think that should be the case? And tell me about your involvement in this lawsuit. For sure. Uh, the biggest thing for me is just the inconsistent uh, responsibilities at 16. You know, when you're 16, you can drive, uh, you can get married, you can give consent, um, and at 17, you can you can join the reserve. So it doesn't make sense uh, that I, you have to wait till you're 18 to be able to vote. Um, and also just with political parties, like you can join a political party when you're much younger. Um, I, you know, some parties are as low as 14. Uh, and you can vote for the party leader, um, but oh. you can't vote for an MP. Right. So, how old? What do you think the voting age should be in Canada? Uh, I I find sixteen to be a, a pretty good age, yeah. um, sixteen or fourteen. Um, and the reason I say fourteen is because of the political party um, thing, where you can you can join a lot of political parties at fourteen, vote for the leaders at fourteen. Um, and then 16 is, is, is also good because it's consistent with the, a lot of other responsibilities that are age-based. Do you think, though, like, okay, let's say someone is 16 or, wow, like even going younger than that, like 14, 15, let's say 16, though. Mm. Do you think most 16-year-olds, though, are, you know, have enough knowledge of, of politics and public policy or uh, to make an informed vote like i'm sure you are you're obviously a guy who's paying attention to what's going on but do you think you know your friends would be able to make an informed vote in an election when they're when they're only 16 years old you know i i think they do they they, they would in general like i see more uh young people my age having a, a better sense of what's kind of going on than than a lot of adults that i know and at least in bc here six about when you're in grade 10 uh, that's when you get your civic education in school. Um, so if you could yeah. vote pretty much right after you just got, you learn about how the government works and um, about how to research parties, I mean, I think that would really make a, uh, an educated, informed vote. Okay, let's check, let's, let me talk to Cheryl Milne now from the University of Toronto. Cheryl, c- tell me about this lawsuit. What is the, what is the argument you're making here in, in court? So the argument is that Section 3 of the Charter, which guarantees the right to vote to all Canadian citizens without qualification, does not have age as an internal limit on voting rights. So instead, if the government wants to limit any right of any citizen to vote, they must really demonstrate it by evidence. We're also arguing that it is age discrimination under Section 15 of the Charter, which guarantees equality rights to to all citizens. Um, So... Uh, so what we're saying is that the government just doesn't have the evidence now, and we're, you know, the neuroscience um, demonstrates that 16-year-olds have the same ability to make these kinds of decisions 
Uh, in fact, and, and it's in that age range of 14 to 16 where they have that, that competency. But we also don't require competency in adults for voting. So if they right. need, if that's the requirement, then they need to establish why it's necessary and that they're consistent. Okay, that's an interesting argument. So I'm taking a look right now at the, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms right now. So I got it in front of me. I'm looking at Section 3. So it says, every citizen of Canada has the right to vote in an election for members of the House of Commons. Every citizen. doesn't have an age in there, right? just says every citizen. That's right. Yeah. So we are challenging the Canada Elections Act, which is the, the legislation that limits the age. Right. But of course, you know, I mean, if you were to say every citizen of Canada has the right to vote, I mean, you know, a two-year-old is a, born in Canada is a citizen of Canada, and obviously you're not going to say two-year-olds are going to be able to vote, right? Don't they have to bring in an age cutoff at some, at some point? They can, but I think it is up to the government to do so with evidence. So they may be able to actually marshal the evidence that two-year-olds aren't able to vote. But it's much harder for them to demonstrate that for adolescents, where um, we really do know that young people are, um, one, very concerned about their futures and decisions are being made that impact them in the long term, and they want to say. And right now, their only say is through demonstrating on the streets, which is which which is have very limited value in terms of influencing politicians, because these are the same people who can't vote. Right. Okay. Uh, Diego Christensen Barker is. Uh, I guess you're you're one of, like one of the official kind of litigants in this case, right? You're officially involved in this case, right, Diego? Yeah, I'm one of the yeah. 13 litigants involved. Okay, so are 13. So there are 13 people all around your age, I guess, and they, from all across Canada, are they? Yeah, I believe. And correct me if I'm wrong, sir. I believe it's about uh, 13 from 12. They're about 12 to 18 uh, are litigants. Is that, is that correct, Cheryl? Okay. They range in, range in age from 12 as our youngest to 18. Who, uh, and the two 18-year-olds that are part of it, um, part of their claim is that they were denied the right to vote in this, in this most recent election just by a few weeks or a few days in one of the cases. Okay. Okay, Diego. Wow, 12-year-old involved in the case. Like, Do you think a, do you think a 12-year-old a, a year old kid could make an, an informed, mark an informed ballot in an election? I think, I think I think just like like I, <laughs> go go ahead Diego yeah. I get your thoughts Cheryl in a sec here go ahead yeah our young our young person definitely could um, you know for the average average twelve year old it's I feel like it's you know similar to the average uh, like adult like there 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 are going to be some that are going to make super informed decisions and there are going to be some that just vote because um, that's how they how they've always voted yeah um, but again kind of like what Cheryl said like uh, you know making like being Politically educated is not a requirement for for adults making uh, making a vote. Yeah, right, um, right. Yeah. Mm. Okay, Cheryl, where has this case been filed? Which court? We have filed it in the Ontario Superior Court, which is a okay. federal. Uh, they're federally federally appointed judges, and and so while it's in Ontario at this point, and a, a small a majority of our litigants are also from Ontario, it will have implications because it's the federal legislation that we're challenging. So it will have implications across the country. Right. And what is the what is the process here going forward with this case? I mean, do you expect this to, you know, have, have a hearing in front of a judge? Can you call witnesses? Is that what's going to happen? Or it's, it's the form 
form is an application. So we will be filing a lot of um, expert affidavits and um, you know, a paper record. And then we will have legal arguments in front of a judge probably in about several months to maybe even a year, just depending on what the, what the scheduling is like and if there are interim sort of um, motions or proceedings that go, that go ahead. So, you know, it's going to take a while. And then, you know, one of the parties may appeal it. And so it, this is a possibility that this is a case that will go all the way up to the Supreme Court of Canada. And it's also one of the reasons why we have such young applicants. So our 12 and 13 year olds will maybe still be under 18 by the time the case is finally heard. Right. right. Yeah. Especially when the court system in our country uh, can take a long time. But do you think, though, that um, going through the courts is the best way to approach this? Like, isn't this more of a political decision of government, wouldn't you be better off maybe, I don't know, petitioning Justin Trudeau or the government to say, like, look, this is what we think you should do, or petition opposition parties to get on board with this? Well, I, I have two answers to that. One is that, and, and Diego can talk about um, the efforts that have gone on in British Columbia. Um, there have been efforts across the country to for legislative reform, and at the federal level, they have not been very successful. The um, major parties, the Liberal Party, has said no to to um, lowering the age, although some of the other major parties um, support it. And yeah. secondly, this is not just a legislative right, this is a constitutional right. And so um, Section 3 of the Charter is what we are basing the arguments on, and it isn't something that should just be left to legislation in our view. Right. Diego, what did you want to say there? Yeah, I just wanted to add, I mean, I've um, I've been working on Vote 16 BC in British Columbia um, for on a more grassroots, uh, you know, petitioning type of type of front for about almost two and a half years now. Um, and actually, last time I was I was on your show, we were talking about um, uh, the BC Federation of Labor's endorsement. Um, right. And it's it's a it's a very slow process. So w- what I see working the best is is you know I'm still going to be working on that and combining those efforts with this court challenge. Um, I think that will just have a higher success rate. Okay, well, we're going to follow it closely, and I look forward to seeing what happens and the way it turns out. Thank you to both of you for being here. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, Mike.